Is there anyone among us this morning who would argue with the suggestion that life is hard? That our earthly existence is often a challenging existence. We face so many challenges, we face adversity on so many fronts. We have vocational challenges, financial pressures, health challenges, relational issues, and the list goes on. And as Christians, we have this additional struggle that the world doesn't have as Christians when we try to live our lives in conformity to the life of Christ. We quickly learn that there is an invisible enemy who wishes to trip us up. Indeed, life is hard. We're tempted to sin every day. Marriages threaten to break up. We get sick. We lose our job. A loved one dies. If you've never experienced the sorrow caused by sin or suffering, you will have great difficulty understanding the sixth psalm this morning. But if you are well acquainted with grief, and with hardship, I expect you will resonate with a great deal of what is written in the sixth psalm. This psalm is referred to as com by commentators as the first of the penitential psalms. The first of the penitential psalms. Uh, these are psalms uh, where there is not simply a lament. But, but a lament in, in a tone or a spirit of repentance. The seven penitential psalms, if you want to write these down, uh, because this is where the psalms get real. This is where the psalms, the word of God admits that life is difficult, it's ugly, there are struggles. And here are these psalms. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, 51... 102, 130, and 143. The sixth psalm is where King David confesses how badly he feels. And he shares how desperate his predicament is. I find this to be striking, a striking admission, a striking confession for our day. Because I... Notice in our day today, there is this prevailing notion. There is a popular notion, and it sounds something like this. You should never entertain negative thoughts about yourself. Instead, you must always try to think positively. Always be happy with who you are and happy with what you've done. This is the popular notion of our day. I want to suggest that if you aim at happiness, if you're hoping to be satisfied in this life, you have three possible tracks that you can get on. At least these are the three most common that I've observed. One way to pursue happiness is to live in denial 
of your true condition. One way to pursue happiness is to live in complete denial of your actual condition. I have watched many people engage in what I would describe as a kind of self-hypnosis where they've somehow managed to convince themselves that everything is just fine, that there are no problems with them or around them. These individuals make themselves oblivious to the storms of life. The first group lives in denial. There is a second track for those who are aiming at happiness in this life, and the second track towards happiness uh, describes those who would suppress or hide the negative things they feel. So in this scenario, unlike the first group, which is in denial over the true condition of our hearts and our lives, this second group is aware of the weaknesses, aware of the faults, aware of the sins, aware of the shortcomings, but are so embarrassed or self-conscious about our weaknesses that the only way to be happy is to suppress these negative feelings and to hide them from others. But here in the sixth psalm, we have from David a better way. We're not going to live in denial of our true condition, at least that's not what David does, nor ought we to hide or suppress the negative things we feel or have experienced. We may feel tempted to cloak our sins and our weaknesses, but what we ought to do, as I look at David, is we ought to freely confess our sins, confess our weaknesses to God. Listen to his opening plea in this psalm. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David recognizes that his sin has placed him in a vulnerable position before the Almighty. And rather than just pretend that everything's just peachy and fine, David confesses his weaknesses freely to God and he begs for God to be gracious to him. I wonder how many of us can identify with these next few verses in the sixth psalm. I know I can. I guess part of the reason I'm preaching on Psalm 6 isn't simply because I didn't do it a couple of years ago, uh, but because I resonate with the words of this psalm. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Whatever David is struggling with, and it appears that he is struggling with a great many things. Indwelling sin, external opposition, a body that is wearing down. Whatever David is struggling with, he appears to also be struggling with a slow response from the Lord. O oh Lord, how 
long? How long before you hear me? How long before you do something about my predicament? How long, O Lord, before you relieve my pain and suffering? Would you agree that what is often the most difficult part about suffering is not knowing how long the suffering will last? That would be a description of me. I can handle a certain amount of pain and discomfort and suffering if I know it's going to be brief. I know if I only have to bear up to it for a season and a short one, I'll be okay. But if the pain and the grief, if it lingers, if the relationship that I care about continues to struggle, if the temptation I face persists, I begin to wonder, and maybe you begin to wonder, is God even listening? Is He paying attention? Does He not notice what I'm going through? And does He not notice how long I've been going through this? I suspect many of you here today are familiar with the cry because you've cried it yourself. How long, O Lord? We need assurance. We need assurance that God is still around. That He hears our cries for help. We need assurance that the pain and the suffering that we're in the middle of, that it's not going to get the final word. That it's not going to define who we are. One of the encouraging things I see in this psalm is how David does not give up praying. He's complaining, he's lamenting, he's confessing. He's saying, Lord, you're not listening, you're not listening, you're not hearing. What does he do? He keeps praying. He doesn't give up. Even though the Lord has evidently delayed in responding to him, David nevertheless persists in prayer. Verse 4, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. I think it's important that we note the basis of David's appeal and what is not the basis of David's appeal. What, What is his impetus? What is his right to come before God and ask for relief in the first place? What is the basis of his appeal? Well, what is not the basis is any merit that David has in himself. David does not come before God and say, Lord, deliver my life. I have been a faithful servant to you for many years. I have been a good king to Israel. On the basis of all that I've done for you and for others, help me, Lord. David does not make a case based on his own merit. Instead, David appeals to God's character. It's God's character that provides the basis for deliverance. He says, O Lord, save me for the sake of your steadfast love, that in by saving me, others would see how great you are, how loving and kind you are, how merciful you are, for your sake, Lord, for the glory of your name. Deliver me. 
The other basis of David's appeal is his genuine need. His genuine need. And if you doubt his genuine need, look at the personal nature of his confession in verse 6. This is, this, is, this is stuff you write in your diary. And here we have it in God's word in Psalm 6, where David confesses, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Do you identify with David's sorrow? With David's admission? Has there ever been a time in your life that you can bring to your mind where you were this desperate for help? That your sorrow was this great? I don't simply want you to see the value of the sixth psalm to be our identification with David's suffering. That's helpful. But as we identify with King David in his suffering, I wish that you would also identify with him, with his hope. Identify not only with the pain and the sorrow that David experiences, but identify with his faith in the Almighty. Identify with his hope of ultimate deliverance. I love how the psalm concludes. David writes, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Why? For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. This psalm structurally is very easy to break down. David spends the first seven verses framing for us how desperate he is, how serious and sad his predicament is. And he spends the concluding verses demonstrating that his hope is in the Lord. So the question that I think is relevant for us this morning because we don't simply reflect on it and walk away. But I think the take home for us is to ask and answer this question. How does David get there? We see he's desperate over here and so full of hope over here. So the question is, how does a person, how do I, how do you turn despair and discouragement into hope and faith in the Lord. Well, we ask, how did David do it? How did David do, move from discouragement to hope? Well, to some degree, we're left to speculate. But Scripture does provide some clues to the answer if we look over the life of David. Many of you will recall the story from 1 Samuel chapter 17, when David was a young boy, maybe a teenager, but if he was a teenager, a very young one. When David was a young boy, his father sent him on an errand. He gave him some bits of cheese 
and some bread and some grains. And he said, go deliver this to your brothers who are in the battlefield. So David, just a young boy running an errand for his father with cheese and bread in his hand, comes to the battlefield where he learns that a Philistine soldier named Goliath is taunting Israel's army and taunting Israel's God. Incredibly, this young boy with cheese and bread says, I don't mind fighting this giant. If there's no one else that's going to volunteer, I'm happy to volunteer. And David sincerely believed he could defeat Goliath. And he makes his case before King Saul. His logic was compelling. Do you remember it? David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, the basis of David's hope, the basis of his confidence, was his experience of the Lord's provision in the past. David's predicament as a young boy was desperate. He was face to face with a lion, and the Lord delivered him. He was face to face with a bear, the Lord delivered him. So this giant didn't seem like any more of a problem or an obstacle. Because the Lord had delivered him from trouble in the past, David believed the Lord would deliver him from trouble in the future. Accordingly, when you are feeling desperate, when you are feeling as if everything is coming apart from the seams, one of the most important things that you can do is this. Remember. Remember what the Lord has done for you in the past. Remember those times when He provided for you in times of need. Bring to mind His faithfulness. Bring to mind those occasions when He clearly poured out His mercy and His consolations upon you. Bring to mind those times where He armored you with such strength and power and energy that you were able to overcome great challenges. Remember how the Lord has helped you in the past. This was the testimony of John Newton, author of the hymn Amazing Grace. He's remembering what God has done. He says, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. John Newton remembered there were toils and snares in the past and he got through them. It was the grace of God that helped him in the past and he was now counting on future grace. Dear friends, what is your hope? Your hope is not in the grace of God in the past. Your hope is in the grace of God today. Grace of God available to you in the future. 
And you count on that. You hope for that. You plead for that. Because your experience is that as God has given His provision in the past, we have hope for provision in the future. But I'm pleased to tell you this is not the only basis of our hope. This is not the only basis of our hope. It isn't simply God's pattern of helpfulness that we're trusting in. But we're also trusting in His promise of help. This is key. We're not simply trusting in the pattern of God's helpfulness from the past. We're trusting in the promise of His helpfulness in the present and the future. Do you remember when the followers of Jesus were struggling with the prospect of Jesus dying? Do you remember what Jesus says to them? Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. He says, it's to your advantage that I die. For if I do not go away, if I do not die, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, if I die, I will send the Spirit to you. So we ask the question again. What can turn our discouragement and our despair into hope? Again, the answer is not found in convincing yourself that everything's pretty good. That we really don't have any serious complaints. Nor is the answer to be found in trying to hide or cloak your troubles. The basis of our hope in trouble is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The basis of our hope is the promise that Jesus, upon His death and resurrection, will send His Spirit to indwell those who trust in Him by faith. Now you know this does not mean that bad things won't happen to you. The bad thing I have to say today is suffering and pain. If it's not a part of your past, if it's not a part of your present, it will be a part of your future. None of this is an insulation from pain and suffering. None of this suggests that we won't go through difficult things. But it does mean If you belong to Christ, if you are connected to Jesus Christ, you will never lack His presence or His provision. You will never lack His presence or His provision. Those of you who have experienced difficult times or the prospect of a challenging meeting, What do many of us do? We invite someone to go with us. Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe it's our brother or our sister or our parent or our spouse. When we're faced with great difficulty, we want someone to stand with us. And when that individual stands with us, we have a newfound courage that we did not previously have when we stood alone. The Word of God gives us every assurance that we never stand alone. 
Though we cannot see Him, our spirit detects Him because we have the promise of His presence and the promise of His provision. Jesus promised His followers. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll not leave you on your own. I'll come to you. I won't leave you to fend for yourself. You won't have to figure out this problem on your own. You won't have to troubleshoot on your own. You won't have to bear the sin and suffering on your own. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you is the promise. My grace is sufficient for you is the promise. My power is manifest in weakness is the promise. That's why Paul says, I'm okay with being weak. In fact, Paul says, I'm, I'm really happy about being weak. In fact, it may seem strange, but I'm going to boast about how weak I am, how vulnerable I am, how worn down I am, how opposed I am, because when all this is against me, God is for me. When I am weak, He is strong. Are you feeling beat up? Are you feeling the burden of adversity? Do you feel weak? Take heart. His power is made perfect in your weakness. And you will never be alone in your trouble. A divine helper stands with you. And He will never, ever leave you. And that is why we sing hymns like, It is well, it is well with my soul. Amen.